Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You want again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you have done Well, good evening. I would like to welcome you to the Stop Child Abuse Now talk radio show sponsored by NASCA, which stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And my name is Penelope Bennett. I am from Bellevue, Washington, and I am with Kim Lakin from Colorado. Um, we are both longtime members of NASCA, and we are also both adult survivors of child abuse. Our show tonight is scan number 3,253, and it is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. And the type of show we're having tonight, as you know, is a special guest tonight. We have a very, very special guest tonight. And as you know, all of our guests are very special. His name is Christopher Bruce, and he's from Huntsville, Alabama. I'll tell you a little bit more about Christopher in a few minutes. But Kim and I would like to tell you a little bit more about NASCA and NASCA's mission, because as you know, NASCA is all about child abuse, trauma prevention, intervention, recovery. We have a single purpose at NASCA, and it's to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violence or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. The first goal, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, abbreviated CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that truly affects everyone. The second goal of NASCA is offering hope and healing. Through numerous paths, we provide many services to adults survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. We would encourage you to become involved in tonight's show, and you can do so by calling in and being a panel member. And as a panel member, you'll have an opportunity to ask Christopher a question about uh, the story that he's about to share with us this evening. The number to call in, it's very simple the number, which is area code 646-595-2118. Again, that number is area code 646-595-2118. And Kim, my co-host, will greet you on our back line, ask you your name, and... Um, We'll bring you into the show. Um, you'll be in listen-only mode, and I will break um, 
during Christopher's story a few times to um, invite panel members uh, to come and join the discussion if you wish. So again, we would encourage you to call in um, to support Christopher and it's nice but also get involved with NASCA. And that number once more is area code 646-595-2118. I want to tell you a little bit about our special guest this evening. Um, he's very seasoned. He hosts a podcast for four years, so we are going to have a great show tonight. Um, as I mentioned, his name is Christopher Bruce. He's from Huntsville, Alabama. To quote Christopher, he is a 62-year-old male. He's married with five children and eight grandchildren. He states that he is um, on his second marriage. His first marriage lasted only three weeks, and he he um, shares that he married her to get rid of her, if you can believe that. Now, I can't wait to hear that story. And his um, second and current marriage has gone 14 years strong with an additional three years of prior dating time. He's had an interesting professional life as well, and he says he used to be a professional graphic designer and a white-collar professional, but unfortunately, a government-induced record um, given to him the last eight years has forced him to change to a construction-related profession. This is due to the fact that his daughter uh, was removed from him. And I know that's going to be a big part of his story, his daughter being abducted from him, um, so to speak. Um, he, I don't, I've not heard his story. I know that that is a part of the story, and I'm interested in learning more about that. He did a podcast for four years about people like him who would have their children legally kidnapped by CPS. To quote Christopher, for the last eight years amidst court battles over the return of my daughter, stolen legally by the state of Iowa, I exposed governmental corruption as a blogger. He's had quite a struggle in his life. And as for abuse story, he says he was Johnny Ghost, attempted, he attempted kidnapped in the same city is Johnny Ghost, and maybe it's pronounced Gosh, so my apologies. But this was in 1976, near, nearly eight years before Johnny was kidnapped. Christopher says he managed to escape his captors, old enough and overt enough to start telling his own nearly kidnapped story. He related what had happened to his divorced mother and his biological brother, but neither of them believed a word of it at the time. And as we know, and as Christopher states in his bio, that is not uncommon, unfortunately. To quote Christopher, my mother never believed it, and my brother, a diehard narcissistic type, didn't believe it fully until around 10 years ago when I related the story again to my cousin. It's an experience that has affected me in various ways over the years and one I will not forget. Wow. So um, uh, before I bring on, you on, Christopher, I'm actually going to unmute your mic, but uh, yeah, we, mic. Do, uh, we do like to uh, go for about 20 minutes or so. Um, I will prompt you with some questions, and then we'll break um, if anybody um, has any questions um, or comments, and then we'll, um, we'll continue on. So um, first and foremost, though, since I've unmuted your line, um, we're hearing a little bit of um, background feedback from Christopher, so I'm not sure um, if well, I'm not sure what that um, would be. I, I'm, I'm okay. actually uh, 
nowhere near my phone. Um, as a matter of fact, okay. my phone is uh, a little bit. So how am I sounding? Okay. Okay, actually, it sounds much. Yeah, I've got it's all gone. my background uh, noises are muted out. So I should be okay. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, so it's, it's actually very clear okay. right now. Um, okay. So, um, wow, um, your bio. Thank you for providing that. It just really helps to get um, sort of start to paint the picture. But um, I so appreciate the um, the information. I know that we do um, appreciate having that background and. Um, I know you had mentioned as we were chatting before the show went live about the fact that um, you, you know your childhood abuse story is um, is a a short one you feel in comparison to the experience that you've had with your daughter. But if you wouldn't mind just giving us some background information, you know, from your earliest memory, you know, where you were born, who was in your family, provide a landscape for our listeners to kind of get to know you as you came to this world, and um, and okay. you know. Um, that would be great. Not a problem. Okay. So I was born in 1960, and um, my early, I was actually born in Long Beach, California. My dad was a Navy man, and my mother, well, she was, she was taken with him and uh, basically wanted to marry him and so on and so forth, chased him around for a while, and then finally got him to settle down a little bit. And, and, but they were divorced when I was four. And they separated, well, he moved away to another state at um, when I was seven. Um, I'll tell you about that in a little bit if I've got the time. Uh, essentially, I went through the exact same thing he went through, uh, but at a later time with my first marriage. So um, essentially, uh, at eight years old, we moved from California to the state of Iowa, and that's where her family is from. And uh, then we moved to the... We started out in a little town of Cherokee, and then we moved to Des Moines, Iowa, which is the capital, of course. Um, now, I was um, actually a foster child from eight until I was 15. Um, my mother just couldn't handle the both of us. She was working two jobs. She couldn't handle us both, and I was not her favorite. Unfortunately, my brother was, and... Um, so I was the one that got put in foster care. I was a little more difficult than he was, I guess, when as a kid. Um, I actually remember watching uh, Robert Kennedy get shot on TV. That was one of, probably one of my very first memories uh, of anything significant. Um, I remember seeing him on the TV and uh, watching him get shot. Um, I think that was in 67 or somewhere in there. Anyway, um, that's Robert Kennedy Sr., of course. And um, let's see. Uh, okay, yeah. And when we moved to Iowa, uh, we were not happy about having to move. Uh, but when we did, uh, we were in a little town for a while, and we went to the capital city. Now, I went to uh, I went to my last foster family was a minister and his wife, and I was with them until I was 15. And that's when my mother said, "Well." I think I can handle him now. You can give him up now, and I have to go back home. Well, uh, needless to say, I was not too thrilled with my mother for giving me up to foster care. Um, it wasn't so much the foster care itself. It was actually the way it, it happened. I was actually put in a mental institution when I was seven because I had what they didn't know yet was ADD. They didn't know anything about it back then, and 
and she thought there was something really wrong with me, and I, you know, I acted out a lot. I was real wild and kind of crazy, and and of course, you know what ADD is, so you know what that's all about. Um, and her friends kept saying, "Well, you really need to put him in a, a maybe a mental institution or whatever," and that's what she did. So I was there for eight months, and before I went to foster care, and I was in foster care in Iowa. I went first three or four years. I was on a farm. Uh, a big farm, a real big farm, and I was basically a farmhand for <laughs> about three or four years, and then um, and then I went to another family, and now this family was, well, that was kind of a weird situation. They, the judge thought maybe I belonged in a place that where I had kids my age. Well, that was a bad thing to do because the kid was kind of rotten, and he ended up getting me in a lot of trouble while I was living there, and about eight months later, they decided they didn't want me anymore. Well, the minister at my church was was a really nice guy. He was young, uh, about 30s or so, and they hadn't had any kids yet. And he said, well, I think I'll take him. And they took me on, and they kept me for four or five years. And um, it was about that time that I went back home to my mother. Now, when I went back to my mother, the very first year was my first year of high school. And I went through high school for a year, and in the summer, I got a little rebellious, and I decided I didn't really like living at home with my mother and my brother. My brother was kind of a, well, let's just be honest. He was an ass, okay, <laughs> and a very bad one at that, and uh, he grew up to be quite the narcissist. But anyway, um, you know, the kind that nobody's ever wrong, but I mean, nobody's ever right but him, and he's right about everything, and nobody else is even close. Uh, one of those mm-hmm. kinds. And um, basically, since he was the darling of the of my family, well, he was uh, the good, you know, the good sheep. He ended up uh, not, you know, being able to do things and blaming that on me, whatever it was. And uh, she always believed him and didn't believe me ever. So he took advantage of that and made my life kind of miserable. But anyway, so after a year, and I went to work at the state fair that year. Now, do you want me to get into this child abuse story, or did you want me to back off for a minute and let you ask me something? Well, um, actually, I did I did have, you know, a, uh, a question and both a comment, and I'm also going to, sure. you know, um, bring, bring Tim in, um, to the conversation next, but, you know, when you say okay. you have a, having done my own a lot of research, obviously into different forms of maltreatment with regards to children. Um, parents okay. who show preferential treatment to one child over the other, that is a very extreme form of abuse, emotional abuse. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so the moment you said that, I thought, oh, my gosh. I mean, I um, um, have witnessed um, – other families, not within my own family of origin, there were definitely different types of maltreatment, but not that one. Um, well, actually, there was that one, but um, where, I mean, just the the impact on the children, not only the favored, but the unfavored, um, are very profound. And, um, and so when you mentioned that, you know, we always also you know, take the opportunity to bring awareness to some of these different forms of maltreatment. That just, my heart just, I mean 
just got really heavy when I heard you say that and then what ensued in terms of you having been released into foster care um, for that reason. So I just wanted to, to you know, comment on that. And, um, um, well, how, essentially you know, the whole deal was I looked like my father and she didn't like that. So that's why I was the least favored. I, I know that's hard to believe that that was the only reason, but essentially – that's the truth. I mean, it was because I reminded her too much of my father. So. That is right. And that is, I mean, children, it is our responsibility to protect our children, not to go on with them. Um, and, in fact, I wanted to bring Kim on, Kim Lakin, and see if Kim had any you know, comments or questions regarding what you share with us so far. Thank you, Penelope. Um, I was... Well, I wanted to say first, I think what is happening maybe with the echo, because I've heard you by yourself and it wasn't there, and then heard her by himself and it wasn't there. So I think it's bouncing off of us as the other person is speaking. So, I mean, if we could mute our phones while the other person is speaking and that mute that can be bouncing off, I think that's what's happening. Well, that could very well be. I've had that happen to me before on the yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, um, so there, you guys alone is. Yeah. Um, just Kim, I was and, and Christopher, I was muted while Kim was speaking. So that 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 feedback is from something. Anyway, it's not. I am muting, so I'm not sure where the feedback's coming from. But I didn't want to mention that. Oh. Okay. So I think it might be echoing through the phone. So like you're echoing through his phone. Not that there's, oh, like, background noise. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Right. So I know I've been muted as well when you guys are talking. I don't know. Christopher, did you say you're not by your phone? So you're not, you don't have the ability no, to mute? No, no. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm hooked up to stereo speakers right now, Bluetooth, and um, I'm oh. talking <laughs> through them. Yeah. So, oh. Uh, speaking yeah. Of, now, the speakers, um, I, I never even thought about it. I maybe should have separated them a little bit. Maybe that would help, too. Um, so I'm going to separate them, and that might help out. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, um, I don't really have a lot to say. I, you know, just admire you coming on and telling your story. And, you know, one of the few men that – has chosen to, to tell your story, and it's so important that, um, and that men's story is out there as well, because there's just about as many, you know, men out there that are being and, or have Absolutely. children. So, as a matter of fact, I'd say there's probably uh, an equal, if not just slightly lesser amount, if any, because uh, you got to remember that men don't generally like to talk about their problems. So me, I don't have any problem with that. Well, and, you know, there's, a, there's an image that a lot of men just portray because that's how they were groomed and raised. So, you know, exactly. well, I raised them myself, so I groomed and raised myself. Right. So that's probably why I can talk about it better than most. Yep. I right. Think that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I'm just sorry that you had to go through all of that. And like Penelope said, we... Yeah. That's what we do on this show, but it still is sad if you hear any story. 
And um, just thank you for your bravery. Well, you're more than welcome to emphasize. Just please don't feel sorry for me. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well. You know, exactly. you just, just comes, just comes out. I mean, is that the, is that little boy? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been nice to have some of that empathy, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, next question. So, so you know, I think we would, I would, I'd love you at this point to um, help um, expand um, and tell us about your father's story as we move forward um, in the show. It'd be great. If you're okay to, um, well, I'm not lying to you. I could I could easily do ten podcasts and still not get my whole story out. Um, it's it's just been a a hell of a ride. I'll I'll just say that much. So you had we had we, we had you know. Um, I apologize. So we had we had stopped when you had um, been taken a job at the fair. And um, yep. and so we'll we'll pick up from now, there. This is where this is where I picked up. Um, essentially, this is the um, uh, this is the kidnapping story. So we're going to get to that. Um, now, this was uh, in '76. I was 15 years old. I was working at the fair uh, over the summer. Uh, the Iowa State Fair is probably one of the biggest fairs in the country. Very famous fair. Uh, very well known. A lot of people attend it every year. Um, it's probably one of the biggest and baddest fairs there is. Um, anyway, um, it was always important to get a job there if you were a kid, you know, because you always made some good money there. And I went to work for um, uh, one of those booths. It was like a game booth or something. And so we were there uh, pretty late at night. I mean, we were there until well after midnight. and Generally, when I got off, I'd call the uh, the city's cab company, and they'd come and get me and take me home. Well, in this particular instance, I had called a cab. I was waiting, and a uh, a car pulls up right next to me, and it's this very good-looking woman, and she leans her head out, and she says, hey, do you need a ride? And I'm like, no, that's okay. I called a cab. And they said, are you sure I can offer you a ride? And I'm like, no, no, that's all right. I can, I can hang out. So they went away. They, they evidently didn't feel like they got very far. And uh, so I waited there about another half an hour, and they came back by again. And needless to say, by this time, it's been about an hour since I called the cab, and it still hasn't shown up. I've called the cab to find out, you know, what's taking them so long, and they said they're real busy and so on. So I'm sitting there waiting, and they came by again, and she says, are you sure you don't need a ride? And I'm like, "Uh," you know, and I just sat there for a minute, and I'm like, I really shouldn't, but she's really nice, and she's cute, and blah, blah, blah. So I said, yeah, well, okay, I'll take a ride home. Well, within uh, just a few minutes, she was, uh, you know, she was asking me questions, and what, what she did was she got out of the car, and she put me in the middle of the front seat. Now, in the left, there was a humongous blonde guy. Now, this guy kind of scared me a little bit. He didn't talk. He didn't say anything. He just sat there. And, he, and it, I could smell the beer on his breath from uh, where where I was. And he seemed like he was real drunk or something. And But she was she was just chatting away, making me feel comfortable. And I, you know, I, I just kind of focused on her and listened to her for a while. 
And then right in the middle of the conversation, she says, so uh, would you like a beer? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 15 years old. I've had a few beers already. And uh, it's the 70s, you know. We, we did that sort of thing when we were kids. And, uh, yeah, I can handle a beer. And she gave me a beer. And as she's talking to me again, she offers me this little pill. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't really take pills, but. You know, well, it won't hurt you, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, well, one pill is not going to kill me. And I took the pill. Now, I want you to know that they offered me another one and another beer, but I could feel the effects of the first one, and something just didn't sing right. I was just not not feeling it. And I said, "Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and take it. And I took it. And then I put it under my tongue, and very first opportunity, I spit it out, which was a good thing because the first pill incapacitated me. I could not move. I'm not kidding you. I was not asleep. I was not knocked out, but I couldn't move. I was literally just frozen, and I could not move. I don't know what that stuff was. I don't know, um, but within a half an hour, I could not move. And... uh well, then the gal says, uh, well, so do you have a girlfriend? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course I do. And she goes, well, what's her name? And, you know, she started asking me about her. And I told her some things about her. And she goes, so do you think your girlfriend would mind if I did this? And she starts uh, rubbing her hand up and down my leg. And I'm like, uh, yeah, probably would mind. But, you know, and, and it just, I'm not going to give you the gory details here, but I'm just going to tell you that for the next hour, um, I sat there, and I'm not kidding you, she gave me oral sex for an hour straight, and I must have, uh, I think I orgasmed about 30 times in that hour, and I couldn't move. I couldn't stop her. I couldn't do anything. I, I just basically sat there. I was frozen. I couldn't hardly move. And as I, you know, as she's doing this, I'm noticing that we're getting further and further away from where I was, and it doesn't look like we're going anywhere near my house, and I'm starting to get a little bit scared now. And not only that, but she's wearing me out, if you know what I mean. And um, and we're just getting further and out and further out, and pretty soon we're out in the country. And I'm like, this isn't the way to my house. And she said, oh, don't worry, we're taking a shortcut and this and that. And um, so anyway, I'm I, I'm just, I'm scared to death. I, I'm thinking I'm getting kidnapped. Well, I was getting kidnapped. I have to say that. And they pulled in and I said something about having to go to the bathroom. And she says, oh, she says, well, I don't think there's any bathrooms out this way. And I said, well, some grass or something. Can I, you know, at least get out and go to the bathroom? And she said, all right, fine. And they pulled into like a little nick that was um, in the road. You're on the dirt road by this time, and you're out way, way out in the country. And she found a little spot, and they pulled over, and she said, that's okay because he's got to go to the bathroom anyway. And this guy still hasn't said a single word the whole time. He's obviously a, a, a huge, I mean, he's like two of me easily. And I'm thinking, boy, this must be her muscle. I mean, if anything were to go wrong with me, I'm sure he'd be right there to take care of it. Well, anyway, he went up and went to the bathroom, and I went to the bathroom at the same time, but I walked 
kind of away from them. They said, don't you get lost now. You come right back. And I'm like, okay, playing, playing, uh, uh, going along with them. And I, I, it was all I could do to stumble enough energy to get over to the pond area. And I got over there and I went for like five seconds and I put it, put it back away and I zipped up and I ran for the tall grass. They drove around that little area for 15 minutes looking for me. And they'd get out of the car once in a while and beat the, beat the bushes and beat the grass and stuff. I mean, I was scared to death. I could, I, I knew they were just looking for me. They, they didn't like the fact that I'd gotten away. I could hear them talking, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. And I knew what was really going on by that time. And, um, so I, when, when they finally left and I made sure I stayed slumped down in the grass in my hiding place for at least 10 minutes after I saw their headlights for the last time, cause I was sure that they'd just turned them off and were waiting for me to spring out somewhere. And so I waited and I waited and I waited and then I finally got up and looked around a little bit and they were gone. And I said, thank God. And I started walking back home. Now this is like, Probably easily, it was probably, but I had no idea where I was. I had absolutely no idea where the city was. I could barely see it. Um, and it was completely dark out there. There was no lights or nothing. So I just started walking in the direction I thought it might be. And I thought as it gets lighter in the morning, it was 1.30 when I got picked up in the morning at when I first got picked up. That was how long it had been since I uh, called a cab and, I waited. I thought it'll get light soon and I'll be able to see the city and from here and I'll just re-aim my direction at that point. Well, I walked probably a good two miles and I just fell down in the ditch. I was so, uh, that, that pill had really taken a lot of energy out of me and I, I managed to make it to a ditch and I fell asleep in the ditch. I woke up, I had spider bites all over me and, and bug bites and everything else and, I was I was just groggy as heck. I could barely get up, and I ended up walking back into town probably 10 miles, I would say, easily. They had taken me out, and I got back to town, and the very first thing I did was hitchhike um, through the city back to my house, and, or no, I didn't hitchhike. I had walked to my house, and I got to my house. I got to the front door. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. And I rang the doorbell, and my mother came to the door, and she was mad. She was pissed. And I said, I did not go out and do anything wrong. I didn't. I swear I was at the fairgrounds. I got a ride home, and they did not take me home. They sexually abused me, blah, 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 blah. I came right out and told her everything, and she didn't believe a word of it. She just basically said, um, you can just stay out there. If you want to be gone so bad, you can just stay out there. And she was mad for the uh, remainder of the day. I, I finally managed to get back in and at, at around probably five or six when she left. And I had to I had to knock on the door when my brother and have him let me in. And he didn't believe me either. He didn't believe anything I was saying. And it was probably uh, I'd say probably a good twenty times that he'd heard it over the years me telling that story. And he finally, when he was about forty believe what I was saying. He said, I've heard you tell that story so many times exactly the way you told it to me the first time. And I just, I'm inclined to believe you. And I'm like, oh, really? Now you want to believe? Okay, whatever. And, 
you know, so it was kind of embarrassing and the whole thing was, you know, it really ticked me off that they wouldn't believe what I was saying. And, and I, you know, I watched her get mad at me for like a week and, and, and not talk to me and so on and so forth. It was really, it was really uh, humiliating. I was not real happy about it, but uh, in the fashion of, it, it was really a scary thing. And when Johnny Gosh got uh, kidnapped some seven, I think it was eight years later, uh, that story is pretty, uh, everybody knows who Johnny Gosh is, or at least, you know, people that are older know. Um, he was 12 years old and got uh, snatched off a of paper route. And um, I actually talked to a guy that said he was Johnny Gosh, but I don't know if he really was or not. He gave me some good details, but then, again, every, those were details that everybody would have known. So I don't know if I was really talking to him or not. But um, when that happened, somebody convinced me to go down to the police station and tell them what had happened to me. And I never really went to the police about it at that point. I was uh, so distraught about my mother not believing me, I didn't think the police would believe me either. So I never told anybody in authority what had happened, and they said, you really need to go down there and tell them what happened to you. And that convinced me that I should go down there and talk to them. That's when that was all happening. So that's one of the things that came out of that. I suppose that was a good thing. And but So that's the story, guys. That's the uh, child abuse story, and it was actually a child abuse kidnapping. Um, as far as anything else is concerned, I would say it was probably more parental abuse than it was child abuse. So um, that's the rest of my story. Um, that's well, about all I have to say. Well, I, I you know, um, it's Penelope. I really appreciate um, you telling that story. And, I, you know, you tell, um, obviously, you're very articulate um, when you're saying it, and you're very, you know, strong, uh, you're strength in your voice. But I know, you know, from my own experience, how... Um, the difficult it is to even, you know, speak of these things that are unspeakable. Um, and as you were relaying that story, um, I had a similar experience. You know, I'm kind of nodding my head. Different venue, different, different players. But um, the same thing happened to me when I disclosed to my father um, what had happened. Um, he did not believe me. And there's, to go through such a traumatic experience, you probably can't see through the the phone or on the podcast, but my mouth was just dropping the entire time. Um, And to finally get home, you know, to get to what should be a safe place, and and not only physically, but emotionally, you know, to tell those who are, you know, either biologically bound or bound to uh, be your guardian to have the courage to say what happened and then not to be believed. To me, um, when I speak of my, you know, when I speak of my abuse and Kim, my co-host has actually never heard that part of my story. That was actually, that's something I haven't even shared yet. It's been the hardest thing to share. There's something about the layer of having gone through that and not being credible and believed, you know, to those that are supposed to protect you was 
so um, penetrating in terms of that pain. Um, it it was that was the worst part of it for me. And so I appreciate your story. Unfortunately, I can resonate your story, and um, and I have empathy. You know, I have empathy for your story, and I appreciate you sharing it. Um, and because these are, you know, these are, um, I've heard people say, well, I, you know, I wasn't physically abused, or, you know, I was only emotionally abused. And I think, don't say only. Because for me, yeah, because. And, and in terms of the forms of maltreatment, um, I was physically abused and sexually abused, but it's actually emotional abuse that's the most enduring and penetrating. And well, so, it's definitely uh, when, yes, yes. And so when you share that, you know, I thank you because, um, I know I'm not alone, and there's so many people here that are either listening right now or, as you know, this is being archived and recorded, that will listen to your story um, on our website, you know, after it's accessible, and they will be able to, you know, this will be, the story will, will be helping others, and um, others will know that they're not alone in this, so I'm sorry, I really appreciate you sharing what you did, and I'm going to actually invite Kim on, I don't know if Kim, if you have any remarks as well before we move on um, into the parental, the CPS issues. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was unmuting. <laughs> I have been talking all day long. I have been talking all day long. Uh, You're all day eating, today, weren't so you? I know it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I forgot earlier. I already got that earlier. <laughs> your first, first, first part of your story. But, um, you know, what I was going to say was when Penelope was talking about, um, you know, nobody believing you, I feel personally like it still deeply affects me. And, I mean, even little things like, I don't know, well, this is probably a good example. I was over at my dad's house just visiting one day at his apartment. And, um, and then I laughed, and he called me. He was like, did you steal my toilet paper? I thought, what the heck? Why would I steal your toilet paper? But it was kind of offensive to me to think that he would think that I would walk out of his apartment with his toilet paper. I mean, and so I think that it you really know, does. I still, hear about, I still hear about the $2 that I took off my mother's dresser when I was 15. I still hear about yeah. it at 60. Well, at 60 was the last time I heard about it because my mother's dead now. But, yeah, I still – I heard about that all my life. So I know what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, well, and he is one of my people as well. And I still have contact with him because – but I'm working through all of this. Um, <laughs> I, I know because it was groomed. And it's because I was groomed that way. I was groomed to take care of him and to take care of men just in general. But, um, and because that was what was, you know, my mom taught, grandma taught. And um, you just didn't, you didn't tell things that were going on outside the home. You know, of course, which a lot of us lived through that. But um, when I told my mom that my dad had sexually abused me, she basically said it happened. And, and she had come from the future as well, and, but it, it, that wasn't an wasn't an excuse by any means. But um, yeah, but, and then holding it against 
me later, and he still holds things against me. Even though I am the only other lady, you know, I kind of think that I held on to the relationship a little bit because my mom died about 19, 19 years ago. Um, and she never sexually abused me, but she was definitely abusive. And probably even more so emotionally because of things like that that she said to me when I was a child and I needed her help. You know, it should have been, I mean, he's not even my real dad, he's my stepdad. He's the only dad I ever knew. But, you know, when you, when you, when a child tells their story or their secret, I mean, we as adults need to be ready to receive that because it's going to be our systems. And that's exactly what I do now. That's what I do for a living now is I educate adults. And what do you do for a living? I'm sorry, what did you so do for I, a it's, living? It's, um, it's called Darkness to Light, Words of Children. And okay. it's a two-hour class that I go out and teach um, adults how to watch out for child sexual abuse. How to, you know, look for the signs. How to understand that grooming can happen in any time, any course, and including to you as an adult. And ex- you know, right. especially if you know you have a child that they want to get to, they're gonna, you know, get to you first and um, build that relationship. And then um, when you see those signs, you know, or if a child comes to tell you their secret, how you respond is huge too, because you know there's like less than a five percent chance that a child is going to lie about being abused in any way, but sexual abuse specifically, because that's what I, I specialize in. But, um, yeah, the, they don't lie about that kind of thing. But what makes them change their mind and say, oh, and take it back is the fact that they got a response that they weren't quite sure how to read. So it wasn't the, right. I believe you, I'm going to make sure everything's okay, I'm going to get you the help that you need. Obviously, that's not the response that they got. <laughs> And so, um, you know, they need to have that response. And so many people don't know that even, you know, not, definitely not consciously, especially if you love your kids and you don't want to hurt them. But if you don't know how to talk to them in that instance, then it will be a little bit more detrimental than helpful. And, um, And so we teach that, and then we teach about who do you report it to. You know, I've got all the emergency numbers in Colorado, and everybody that does this curriculum in different states all over the world, um, you know, we have resource numbers that we give out when we go into our classes so that people know exactly where they can contact. And one of the things that we really advocate for is to go to a a child advocacy center um, if a child has come to you. And, you know, call them because they know how to do all of the forensic interviewing. And then the child doesn't have to go through 10 different people before they even get to the child advocacy. So, but if you call, you know, and and the police, and they will, they will find out as well what is going on. And they will, but they will find out through the advocacy center with those, um, you know, concrete forensic interviews that they need and so um, and then after that what you know what are you going to do in the future then to prevent it just again from happening and I get a lot of a lot of people 
calling me after the first time it's happened, and then they're like, okay, we don't want to talk Our goal is to get prevention in there. You know, that's not our goal, is to get it afterwards. Our goal is to do it before. And um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's really important to me, and it's really important because I was five years old when my first experience happened, and I didn't know what was happening to me. As a matter of fact, I thought that because my friend who was being abused by her cousin in the same room, in another room, I, saw, I thought she was taking it so well. I just must be immature. And so, child, you yeah, just don't crazy. know it's what you get. Yeah, at five years old. I mean, how could I? Yeah. How could I? So, yeah, it's important that we learn as adults and we start taking that responsibility back because it should have never really been shown. And they still do that in the schools, you know. We're supposed to be getting education with the Aaron's Law that has gone around. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that. Or not, but I mean, it's a great idea. And once you get it into Congress and you get it approved, they can pick it apart. And so we are still having what I'm noticing in the in the schools is we're only doing the education for the children. So then we're just putting it back on them. It's like no, the adults need to be educated as well as the children. We need to get it all out there. Oh, don't get me don't get me started on what they're teaching people in school these days. I, you don't you, oh, you don't want me to get started on that. I I've, I've got to tell you there's as well. Ah. Well, I <laughs> yeah. I've got to tell you that um I it's important that I tell you that at 16 I dropped out of high school in the middle of high school in the middle of 11th grade. And I decided that I wanted to the reason I did that was cuz I wanted to get away from my mother. I basically I uh, quit my job, and I moved into an apartment and of my own, and I got two jobs, and I've been working two jobs. Oh, I don't know. I'd probably work two jobs for the next three, 30, 30, 40 years. Um, I've always had a, a sideline of some sort. and But anyway, neither here nor there. At 18, I joined the service, and I did that because I got in trouble. And I wanted to get away from the trouble, so I joined the service. I was in the Army for uh, a couple of years. Um, by the time I'd reached the age of 22, I'd seen 28 countries and 49 states by that time. I, I took a whole year off of my life and went and hitchhiked around the country. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I actually had a great time doing that. Um, couldn't do that now nowadays, but it was really interesting. It was real fun. And... Um, I've always been, you know, quite a grown-up as far as uh, things go. And But um, the funny part of that also is that um, 21, I actually went out to find my father. And my father and I had always talked, okay? So even though he moved away, I went to see him, or I, I always talked to him on the phone. I always knew where he was. I knew that he was in Washington, uh, he's in, he was in Tacoma, and I knew he was there, and I always wanted to go out and see him and meet him for myself, because I didn't remember him very well from when I was a kid, uh, obviously, because it was four when they separated. But I went to visit him quite a bit, and I remember one time I went to visit him, and he wasn't there anymore, he'd moved out. And nobody knew where he was for at least a year, and then um, 
then I started hearing that they'd found him again and that they were talking and and um, I got to talk to him a few times after that. But one thing I will say is the man always paid child support and he paid it on time. So uh, all of my life I never had that problem. He always paid his uh, he always did took care of his bills and he always took care of us and he'd send us a check every year on on my birthday. The funny part of that is I was still getting checks at fifty five. So uh, that was about the last time oh I got God. one. But yeah, he was sending me checks every year on my birthday for for every year. So um, the man was always good about taking care of us and so on. But my mother bad mouthed that man so badly. Um, this is one of the things I considered abusive. Um, essentially, because I look so much like him, she made it clear at all times why it is she didn't like him and why he had, uh, you know, she didn't like him. Um, she'd tell me every bad thing she could about him. Oh, your father did this. Your father did that. He was, but the funny part about that is I never had a bad thought about him. I never thought anything bad, but I couldn't figure out why that was. Well, when I met the guy finally at 21 and it took me that long to get out there to see him, I hitchhiked out there to see him. I went to to Washington uh, on my thumb, and that was the year that I went around the country for a whole year. But I hitchhiked out there, and I called him. And he, and I'd called him halfway there, and he goes, well, when you get here, give me a call, and we'll, we'll hook up, and you can stay with us for a while, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, cool. And, you know, I just thought it was cool. As heck that he, you know, he uh, wanted me to come and stay and all that stuff. So I went out there, I called him up, and I go, uh, okay, I'm here. And he goes, um, well, can you, can you give me a little time to get down there to get you? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, how long do you need? And he goes, well, give me about a half an hour. And I'm like, okay, uh, I don't have any problem waiting. And he goes, well, I'll be down there as soon as I can. I promise my, my friend Robin came into town at the same exact time that you did, and I had – I had to go get her, and we're, we, she just got in, and we're trying to get her settled and so on. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no problem. So then he comes down to get me. Now, this is really, really messed up. The guy looks just like me, okay? And I look at him, and I know it's my father immediately. He's 45 years old at the time. And I looked at him, and I just could not believe my eyes. I was like, It was like looking in a mirror, you know, 20 years from now. And... With him was probably the most gorgeous woman I had seen ever seen in my life at that point. Uh, she was about 22 or 23 or so, and he introduced her as Robin, and, and uh, she's going to be staying with me for a little bit too, and then, you know, you can stay as, as well as long as you need to. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, then I find out that Robin is <laughs> – she's this spirit, wild-spirited woman, and she – I don't know where she met my father, but she basically what she'd do is she'd go hitchhike down to California. She'd uh, hang out with people that she knew down there. And then she'd every once in a while, when she got tired of that life, she'd come up and stay with my father. Well, she was really into my father. She really liked him a lot. And uh, they slept in the same bedroom. And I was, you know, <laughs> what's funny is that um, I would – you know, every once in a while I'd hear him at night. You know, she 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 really liked him in that way. And uh, 
he did, he just didn't have the heart to tell me. But she she didn't have no problem at all. She as soon as he left, she told me all about it. Oh well, yeah, I've known your dad for this many years, and and uh, I always liked him, and I I just recently just uh, I just told him how much I, recently, and and I stay with him once in a while, and. And I'm not kidding you. This woman used to walk around the house with just a robe on, and and she she sometimes she had the robe open, and I was just drooling the whole time I'm sitting there. But anyway, so one one day he comes out of the uh, the bedroom. It's like a Saturday or something, and he's got these big rings around his eyes, and he looks like he hasn't slept in days. And he looks at me and he says. Chris, I just don't know. Can I talk to you for a minute? And I'm like, yeah. And he says, I don't know what to do about this girl. He says, she will not leave me alone. She will not let me sleep. Every day I tell her I have to get to work. She wakes me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, wants to have sex. And, and I'm just looking at him going, oh, you poor thing, you. You know, I'm just laughing inside. I'm just like, oh, my God, this guy is really trying to tell me he doesn't like this girl? Come on, man. So anyway, <laughs> and I. So I stayed with him for three weeks, and I I heard the story, his version of the story of what happened between him and my mother. And I'm telling you, I listened to my mother badmouth my father for years and years, and I never believed a word she said. And the minute he told me what happened on his side, I believed every word of it. It just sounded exactly like my mother. My mother is the queen of the guilt trips. This woman would not only guilt trip you, she'd buy you the ticket to help you pack. Um, she was that good. I mean, she, she could make uh-huh. you feel guilty about uh, something you did that was her heroic uh, if she wanted to. I mean, she just, she she was good at making people uh, crumble. But anyway, one the one thing, there were uh, two things my mother gave me. I'm not going to tell you about the one because that's a health issue. The other one is she gave me a knowledge of people. And I want to tell you, there's only been one person in the entire world that's ever been able to fool me. And he fooled everybody, so I don't feel bad about that. So, But nobody else, um, I have this very uncanny talent to where I can see a bad egg coming five miles down the road. You know, somebody comes up to meet me in 30 seconds, I know what kind of a person they are. Within five minutes, I can tell you some basic things about that person. In an hour, I could probably tell you their life story. That's how good I am. And I used to have girlfriends bring over their new boyfriends all the time. I want you to check this guy out and tell me what you think of him. Because almost every time I predicted something about it, it was, I was right. I was never wrong. And um, and it, it used to get, it got to the point where I just said, quit bringing your boyfriends over here. I don't want to, I mean, I could be screwing up the love of your life. You never know. You know, but they kept saying, you know, we really appreciate what you do for us and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, uh, all my life, I've never liked guys. Now, when, when I say that, what I mean is I've never liked men. I've never liked a man's personality and what they do to women. Um, I don't like the way that they treat the opposite sex. And I don't care for the, you know, the things like watching football on Sundays, sitting around the house, watching football with a bunch of guys, going out to the bar with a bunch of guys. Those sort of things never did anything for me. I never liked that. Almost all of my friends all my life have all been women. I trust women. I I deal with women better. I get along with women better. I don't trust men to save my butt. Okay, so you're never going to – I've maybe had two best friends that were men in my entire life. 
So it, that's always been kind of unusual for me too. I think a lot of that had to do with, with the fact that I was, you know, uh, raised primarily, I was primarily always around women when I was being raised. So um, a lot of that had to do with it. Um, I don't know. I just, and I've always had a, I've always had a connection to women a lot more than I've had uh, to guys. And when they tell me their problems, I go, get out of here, go away. And when a woman comes up to me and I'm just, you know, attentive as heck and I listen to the whole thing and I usually give them good advice. And, and that's why, that's how that whole thing with the uh, bringing over their boyfriend started. And um, so, yeah, it's been kind of an interesting uh, life when I was growing up. Um, now, this you're going to find really funny. When I got done uh, hitchhiking uh, and I came back to town, now you talk about child abuse. I, I was 21. I came to my brother's, my mother's house. I'd been gone for like six months. And I knocked on the door. It was the day before my birthday. And I knocked on the door. I, I really wanted to come home for Christmas and uh, be around family. And I, you know, I'd call every once in a while, you know, like every two, three months and tell them what was going on. I told them I was out on the road. I was doing this. I was doing that. And, you know, and it was usually my brother that answered because my mother was usually always working. And he was always such a butthead. He'd, he'd go, well, you really need to call mom and talk to mom because she's really worried about you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, whatever. And when I got back, it was the day before my birthday. It was easily the coldest day that year. And my brother wouldn't even let me in the house. He just basically said, you can, you know, you, you haven't called in two, three months, and you just came back for your birthday and this and that. My birthday is a week before Christmas. And um, I said, no, that wasn't it at all. That's not why I'm here. And, and he said, well, you can just sleep out there until mom gets home. And I, I had like four layers of clothes on. I'm sleeping in, in like sub-degree weather and uh, trying to sleep on the porch. And... Uh, but anyway, when I got back and I got tired of that and I just, you know, I talked to my mother for maybe 15 minutes. I was so mad. I just walked right out of the house and, and took my suitcase and said, I'm leaving again. And I went downtown and I went to this hotel where I knew the, the night clerk and him and I were, uh, we, we were friends and we talked about a lot of stuff. And when I got down there, I was sitting there talking to him and these two women came uh, marching in. Now, the one, I, I got to tell you, looked like a straight-up prostitute to me. She had a mini skirt on. She had high heels. She, had, uh, she was wearing a shirt with the buttons open and so on. And just, I don't know, it, was, it wasn't so much that as it was I just knew she was. And I was right. And the other woman was a, a bigger woman, and she immediately walked up to the Pac-Man machine. Now, this is back when Pac-Man first came, video games first came out. And uh, and I was just fascinated by him anyway. And I walked over, and I just started watching him play. And um, she looks over at me. There was one point she got a break, and she looked over at me, and she goes, can I help you with something? And I'm like, no. I said, I just want to watch you play, if you don't mind. And she says, well, yeah, I kind of actually do mind. you mind just waiting over there? And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I went over to the table, and I sat down. Well, uh, anyway, about 10 minutes later or so, they came back over to me, and they sat down, and she goes, I want to apologize to you. I was pretty rude to you over there. And, and she said, at first, I thought you were a cop. And I'm like, a cop? 
I said, I'm, 30, I'm, I'm 21 years old and I'm carrying my suitcase around with me with my stuff in it. How could I be a cop? And why would you even ask or why would you even think that? And she started telling me about um, something and I don't, I don't remember what it was. She asked me what I did for a living and I told her I was hitchhiking around the country. And I said, what do you guys do? And she goes, I'm a second story person. And I'm like, what the hell is that supposed to be? And they just started laughing. They were joking, I guess. But I found out later. But essentially, a second story man is, a, is somebody that robs houses. But anyway, she said, well, I'll tell you what. She said, you really want to know what I do? She says, here's my address. Here's my phone number. Give me a call and come over and you can see what I do for a living. I'm like, okay. Well, I went over to her house. I called her up one day and I went over to her house. She was actually a madam if you want to go that route she was she ran a little uh, house of uh, sending girls out to uh, to escort guys and um she was sitting on this she this house was just icky it was there were roaches all over it she was sitting on the floor on the phone she's talking to this guy about sex or something and i don't know what it was but anyway i just i i was just in dumbfounded i had my mouth open and i was like oh my god this is terrible and i listened to her tell me the whole thing of what she was doing and i said and then after it was all done she goes well what do you think and i said you know you want to know what i think and i opened my big mouth this is what i'm good at i opened my big mouth and i stuck my foot right in it i said uh i could run this business better than you and she just kind of looks at me like i hit her and she goes Oh, you really think so, do you? And I said, yeah, I think I could. And she says, well, I'll tell you what. You come back here tomorrow. I'm going to tell you what. I'll, I'll let you manage this place. I'll stick to the phone. You can manage this place. We'll see how well you do. You know, I'm 21 years old. I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about the business. I don't know anything about business, period. But uh, funny enough, this is how I actually learned about business. I Essentially, I took over as a manager, and within six months, we had 30 girls working for us. We, When we started, we had two ugly girls. We had one phone, and we had one ad that was in the newspaper. We had four ads, two phones, and 30 girls that were working for me, and more were pounding on the doors wanting to work for us. By the time I was done, we were making three to four to $500 a night. That, this was in the 80s, so that was pretty good money back then. But we were making all this money and we were doing really well. And after a year of that, I just kind of said, oh, that was fun. And I quit and I took off on the road again. So I've, I've had kind of a, an unusual life. Um, at 28, I, I mean, I've always worked. I've always worked jobs. You know, I never really slacked off on that ever. Um, when I was 28, I actually, I went to work for a print shop. And after about a year, I met, now you, you were talking about wanting to hear the story about the my first marriage. Well, anyway, I was working at a print shop, and I went to the bar one night, and I ran into this older lady that I knew pretty well, and she was with this young, real pretty girl. And I was like, wow, she's, she's cute, and she had really nice legs. And I told her, I said, I think you have really nice legs. And she said, come back over here and talk to me for a while. I said, okay. Well, I talked to her for a while. She told me she was, uh, her name was Leslie, and she told me she was 22, and she was a substitute teacher in high school. And by the time we'd gotten done, we got along really well, and I was, I thought she was a pretty neat lady, and we, um, 
talked about dating, and I got her number, and we started dating, and I dated her for over a month. And then I found out that she wasn't 22 and a substitute teacher in high school. She was 17 and still in high school. And I immediately said, get out. I said, I don't want to see you ever again. Please do not call me. Do not come over to my house. I can't believe that you lied. And that's what it really was. It was just the fact that she lied to me. And I didn't appreciate that at all. And it wasn't even the fact that she was 17. Uh, it was just that she lied. And I kicked her out of the house, and I told her not to come back. Well, she was totally obsessed with me. She probably uh, – I couldn't get rid of her. I, 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 moved out of, I moved out of the house. I moved to a different place. I quit my job that I'd been at for two, three years. Um, I went – I moved around town. She'd always find me. She'd always call my mother, my brother, and ask her where, where I was. Uh, when that didn't work anymore, she used to call and pretend she was somebody that was looking for me, somebody somebody else. Um, she uh, just would not leave me alone. And I actually moved out of the city and moved about 300 miles away. And she managed to find me and came up there and knocked on my door and said, my mom keeps me on the house. I don't have anywhere else to go. And I'm like, oh, my God. you know. And I let her stay, and that was a big mistake. And when I moved that time, I moved to Kansas City, and she still found me. I don't know how this woman kept finding me, but she kept finding me, and she'd, she'd show up on my doorstep, and I could not get rid of her. Well, then, finally, I was looking through the paper, and I saw in the job section, and I said, hey, what about this, Leslie? In New York, they're looking for nannies. Now, live-in nanny. What do you think of something like that? And I talked her into it. And she went to New York City and took care of, uh, nannied some kids. And I thought, oh, my God, I finally got rid of her, right? Well, about six to eight months later, I moved back to my city, and I moved in with some friends, and I swear I did not tell anybody where I was. And she showed up at my doorstep again and found me again. She came back from New York. Well, anyway... She was 18 at this point and on her way to 19, and she asked me if I would consider dating her again. And I said, you know what? I said, I really don't think that's a good idea. I'm, uh, and, but she, oh, I've been to New York. I've been around the big city. I've changed and blah, blah, blah. And she talked me into it. And I said, okay, fine. We'll date for a while. We'll see how this goes. Well, about three, four months later, she was like, let's move in together. And she just harped on that subject for about, oh, I don't know, probably a good two, three months. And I said, fine, fine, whatever, move in, move in. And then later on it was, let's get engaged, let's get engaged, let's get engaged. And I'm like, Leslie, no, I don't want to get engaged. No, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I, no, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. And she kept bugging me and hounding me and hounding me. And then finally I said, fine, poof, we're engaged, whatever. And then, of course, that was my big mistake. Then it was, let's get married, let's get married, let's get married. And she, for six months, I told that woman, no, I'm not going to get married. No, I'm not going to marry you. I don't love you. I don't, that, that's not how I feel about you. Blah, 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 blah. And, and she just would not let up. And finally, and this sounds mean, but finally what I said was, fine. Want to get married? Let's get married. I said, I'll tell you what. We're going to have a little wedding. We're going to have it not in the church, but we're going to have it out in this park over here. We're going to have a park, a park wedding. 
And I'll tell you what, I'm not going to invite any of my family. You can invite all the family you want to. I don't care. We'll get married. And I'll tell you what, after I get married, I'm not going to ever sleep with you again. I'm going to move you into a place you can't stand. And then in a few weeks after, I'm going to leave you all the time. I'm going to go out, have a good time with my friends. I'm going to get, uh, you know, into relationships with other women. I said, and after that happens, I said, I want you to give me an annulment. And you know what she said? She said, okay, I'm not kidding. This, this was how she was. She thought that once we got married, all our problems were going to be solved. And I, and I did. I married her. And within three weeks, I asked her, I said, okay, so you're ready for that annulment yet? Because I did everything I promised. She goes, yes. And then she disappeared. I, I have no idea where she went. But she showed up 10 months later. She was pregnant. She said it was my kid. I said, that's impossible. I'm sorry. I don't believe you. And she had the baby. And for the next year, she made my life a living hell. She went to, she cost me probably eight jobs in a year. She'd tell all my friends that I abandoned her. I let, I got her pregnant. I left her. And, and then I just left her alone and told her I didn't ever want to see her again. And I wouldn't help her and I wouldn't do anything for her. And I hadn't seen her in 10 months. I literally had not seen her face in 10 months. And then she'd show up at the bar. She'd ruin anything I had going on. And one night, I, I actually met a girl that I thought was wonderful, and I started, and I hung out with her, and we, we had a good time that night. And I woke up the next morning, and I walked out the apartment, and there's Leslie staring down at me. She saw my car sitting out in the parking lot. She lived in the same apartment complex. And... This continued on for about another year, and she finally met somebody that was just as crazy as she was, and she married him, and I have not seen her since. But she had a baby that uh, that was mine. I did a paternity test on it. I don't know how that happened, but there's only one thing I can figure out. I'm narcoleptic a little bit. Um, if I'm really tired, really, really wore out, I will pass out, and there's no waking me up. There's no waking me up for at least two hours. Um, if you can push me off a ledge, you can uh, throw me out the window, it doesn't matter. You're not going to wake me up. You can fire a cannon right next to my head, and I won't wake up. And I actually had a girlfriend one time. I uh, was with a girl uh, at 18, and I passed out on her. She was She was crazy about sex, and we had it all the time. And one day I was just exhausted. And I said, you've got to quit, Andrea. I can't handle this anymore. And she says, oh, come on, come on. And I literally, I fell asleep in the middle of it. I was so tired. And this woman opened my shirt and tattooed a gigantic A on my chest for Andrea in hickeys. And I didn't even know it was happening. And I woke up the next morning. I had this big gigantic A on my chest, and I didn't know where it came from. But anyway, the way I figure it is on our wedding night that she waited until I passed out, and I think she raped me while I slept. And that's the only possibility because from the minute we got married, I did not have sex with her. So I don't know how she could have gotten uh, pregnant at all by me, but that's the only thing I can figure. That was quite a nightmare. Um, <laughs> it took four years for me to get rid of her finally, and that's basically what it took was for me to marry her and treat her like hell before she'd go away. Well, and it sounds to me, um, Christopher, like she actually, I mean, if, if she 
had sex with you and you're unconscious. That's an assault. Because yeah. you were not consensual. Well, I, you know, I didn't know how it happened then. And it was it was a couple of years in, after that that I thought, I, that's not my kid. That's not my kid. That's not my kid. And And when we did the fraternity test, that's when I finally realized it was mine. And then I couldn't figure out what had happened. How in the hell did that happen? We were apart for 10 months. How in the heck is she having a kid right now? Well, that was the only thing I could figure. Right. I mean, it's the only thing that makes any sense. That is really unbelievable. And I think there's a theme here, you know, because there's things that happen that are out of your control, you know. Um, Obviously, that was obviously out of your control. I'm just letting you know that we have 17 minutes left of the show, and I know that time goes by oh, very quickly. This and so, you know, um, I got to tell you, I, it, it, I, I, I wasn't lying when I said to you I could come on the show 10 times and still not finish my story. So <laughs> I'm sorry well, we, about that. I didn't we, mean to talk oh, no, through the whole thing. Don't apologize. We can actually do a part two. So I don't want to rush your story. It's an important one. So. Well, yeah, um, and the I last have, part is definitely the most important. There is no question. So let's go chronologically. So that's everything that's happened in the last eight years. That's really important. Yes. Um, and uh, so did you want to – I'll let you – you know, we've got about 16 minutes. I'll give you – you know, I'll, I will pass the two minutes back off to you. And you can – budget your time as you wish, and, and we are very open to doing a part two. So I will, you know, toss the uh, Well, if you want to, I can skim to. over the part right up to that, that moment, and then we can continue uh, with that story when we get to it. Um, okay. Essentially, just for the last, um, for, the, for the time after Leslie, that was at 31, and until the time I was 45, that's how long it took me to find a woman that I actually wanted to settle down with and get married to. Um, I met her at a bus stop. We were sitting at a bus stop one day together, and and she just kind of came right over to me. She just waddled right over to me and said, you want some Pringles? And I'm like, how would you know I was hungry? And she said, oh, I just looked at you, and I thought maybe you might want some. And I'm like, well, sure, I'll take some. And she was really – she was a lot younger than me. She was like 26 or so. I was 45 at the time when I met her, and she said, so, you know, and she started talking to me, and she, and, and I said, she said something about wanting to go out on a date sometime, and I'm like, well, you know what, I've never had a woman come up to me and actually hit on me and ask me out, yeah, sure, I'll go out on a date with you, and she, she was, and I thought to myself, okay, Chris, it's 40, you're 45, you've not been happily in love and married uh, ever in your life, when are you going to have somebody that's this good looking ever come up to you and hit on you again? I think I'm going to have to keep this, this one. And I have for 14 years. Um, she, we got married uh, three years into our relationship, and we've been together ever since. Oh, that's so wonderful. So wonderful. But, that is uh, fantastic. Since then, well, I mean, since the since the Leslie dilemma. That was my, um, that was actually my second child. My first child was a gal named Barb, and I met her uh, a couple of years before Leslie, and she was, she was a little bit older than me, and, but she was, um, I was 25, I was still a kid, essentially, I was a kid until I was 40, probably, 
and I was really a, a big kid. I didn't want to get tied down in, in a relationship, but she got pregnant, and I didn't even know about it. She broke up with me before she told me she was pregnant, and it was long after I had left that she finally told me, uh, by the way, I was pregnant. I, I don't know what it was about the women I was dating, but I always seemed to find the ones that were a little screwed up in the head. Um, she, uh, and she would never let me see that kid. I didn't see him until he was almost 25. And oh, he wow. went out and he was looking, he was actively looking for me. I didn't, I wasn't looking for him because I knew what she was like. And I knew that she would be really upset if I tried to look for that kid because she made me sign an agreement saying I would never try and see him. Uh, that's how little she wanted me to have anything to do with him. And I don't know why that was. I really don't because I didn't treat her. I've, I've not treated a woman terribly ever, or at least I didn't think I did. Um, I've never really treated a woman badly. I, I wouldn't even know how. Um, I mean, I've watched people, I've watched guys that I knew screw up their relationships pretty badly. And it was the fact that my, I think it was my mother's, relationship with my father and also just watching a lot of the people that I went to high school with get married early and and were already divorced by the time I was 25 or 26. I think that's what stopped me from, I, sw I made a promise to myself I would never get married until I was at least 40. And I stuck to that promise um, with the exception of Leslie, who I was married to for three weeks and I kicked her out. So, um, but it took us a year and a half to get divorced because she wouldn't she wouldn't uh, let me talk to her long enough to to get a divorce. So uh, that was the problem with that. And I finally got and she finally served me with papers. And I was like, gladly, let's go, please. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that was my life until until we had this little issue. And I can tell you about that on the next part. <clears throat> That's a really long and sad story and definitely not one that I would recommend for anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> and and definitely not to, to cram into 10 minutes. So um, I definitely um, will have Bill get back in touch with you about scheduling um, the okay. second part. Um, but yeah, and, uh, and really, I, wanted, I, I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant to child abuse. It's basically child abuse for the kid that you've taken away. Uh, and, and let's be honest, CPS is less than forthright with the things that they do. And believe me when I tell you that's putting it lightly. Um, I, I've seen them take kids away from loving, wonderful parents and give them away to abusive, narcissistic ones. I've seen them take them out of loving, loving homes and put them in homes with 12 other foster kids and let two of them starve in the basement. I mean, I've seen all kinds of funky things in my time, and believe me, uh, CPS is not the agency they were meant to be ever, in my opinion. But. You know, and I've, had a, and I've had a very different experience. Yeah, so um, my niece and nephew, my husband's sister, um, her children were within her um, care um, as adolescents, and um, there was very extreme um, abuse happening in the home. And my husband and I called CPS repeatedly, repeatedly. And, you know, in, unless you are a um, mandatory reporter, 
No, we could not get them to move. Um, they ended up, they did end up getting a call from a mandatory reporter, um, a teacher, I believe, observed something with her son. Um, but because it was only one call, they left the child on the island. So my my own experience, and of course this is in Washington State, was the fact that they would not ask. And they chose yeah. to oh, oh, and very, very Believe me, I've heard stories of them not reacting to actual abusive situations and just showing up at people's houses that did nothing wrong and taking their kids away. I mean, I, I've heard oh. it all. And, and for four years straight, every single solitary day, I put one parent on my, my uh, show, and they told their horror story. And every time I would go, oh, my God, that's terrible. That's got to be the worst story I ever heard. But the next day, there'd be somebody even worse. And right. just yeah. the, uh, for four years, it was more than I could take. I had to quit doing it. But I'm not kidding you. I did shows every single day under three different networks and I never took a break and there were there were just an endless stream of of parents that had been uh, uh, victims of the system and we wow. were definitely the epitome of those those people but what you know I thought it was just a one-time thing when it happened to me and then I figured out they were doing it all over the, the state and then it I found out they were doing it all over the country, and then I found out they were doing it all over the world, and I was like, in almost the exact same ways, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, a, this is horrible. I, I recently, well, it wasn't recently. It was about three years ago. I published an article. It was from the, NF, uh, what is it, what's it, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure of the acronym, but um, they published – an article, uh, somebody published an article of them uh, in an interview with the head of that agency. You know what she said? Not kidding you. That 88%, they have determined that 88% of all missing and exploited children are CPS victims. Not kidding. Oh, wow. 88%. And that was like four years ago. So, you know, maybe that percentage has gone up. Yeah, uh, that a lot of kids that are missing or exploited uh, sexually or whatever are actually um, just out of the foster care system or just out of uh, uh, like a, like a, oh, what do you call those places where they put the kids that until they get foster homes or whatever, they're kind of like a a house for, you know, kids or whatever. They they actually told stories of them calling like pimps and stuff, and, and having them waiting outside of their gates until when they released this, when this person aged out, they'd be right there to pick them up right from the gates of wherever they had them. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a joke. And I think it's very important information right. to, to share and to educate, absolutely, because um, we need more voices for our children um, and we need more awareness and we need more exposure um, to the entities or the individuals that are you know, perpetrators you know, are the perpetrators of these crimes um, and putting a child yep. in a abusive situation is a, is a crime it's absolutely a crime um, I'm going to ask you oh, ask Tim it's, it's um, a crime in, 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 my, in my opinion it's a soul wrenching 
uh, experience. Right. It's something that you, yeah. it just destroys you as a parent. It really does. And it's got to oh, destroy God. the kids a lot more than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to invite Kim um, back in to see if she has any more questions for you at this point. Um, sure. Give her an opportunity. Um, no, I don't know if I have to. Hi, right, Kimmy. How you doing, honey? Hey. Good to see you again. <laughs> hey, I just saw you. Thank you for accepting my friend request. <laughs> So I don't really have much to say, but I would like to know, I would like you to share, if you wouldn't mind, um, how people can get a hold of you. If you, you know, like on Facebook, and yeah. where else can you get a hold of you? Oh, I, I don't have any problem with that. Now, I want to tell you that this, my, this particular profile is now my third profile. What happens is, every time I get close to 5,000 people on my friends list, they lock me out of my account. Or if I post something they don't like, they lock me out of my account and I can't get back into it. This is my third profile now. I've had it for a month and I'm already up to 600 people. Um, and most of them are people that I've always had in my friends list. But um, you won't find as many interesting things here. But if you look up Christopher Bruce, you'll find other profiles that I've had that are very, very uh, loaded down with all kinds of really good stuff. Um, this particular one is my second one in three years. And it got shut down when I questioned vaccines uh, in such a way that they didn't like it. And they locked me out of my account and said, oh, we detected some suspicious activity in your account and, and we've decided that we need you to verify who you are before you can get back in. And I'm like, screw you, I'll just, I'll just open up another one. And But I went off of Facebook for a year. Um, it, it just made me so mad, the, the amount of censorship. You know, when, you, when you're talking about things that people are questioning, well, then all of a sudden, if you don't fit the narrative, boy, they just shut you down in a second. They do that to you on Twitter and other places, too. Are you there? And how about uh, yeah, and, uh, like an email, like maybe yeah. an email address or something? Oh, yeah, want, I got an email too. Uh, I, I know who both of you are now. One is Kim Lakin, correct? And the other one is Penelope. So um, I've got you both at the top here that, that we are now connected. So I will Great. send you e both email. And I will also send you the, I, I don't know if you've been to my blog yet, but um <clears throat> One thing I'll tell you is, watch out, it's loaded. Um, you'll go there and you'll learn some stuff that'll curl your hair twice, even if you don't have any. So um, wow. <laughs> I'll give you the link to that and tell you that I've been writing that for eight years. Uh, Google has suppressed me really badly um, just in the last year. Um, I used to come up the first and second result every time when you search me. Now I come up result number 54, I think it is. Nobody else has this name. Nobody else has this name. If you put in the exact name, they won't come up for 54 results. What's the deal with that? <laughs> it's because they're censoring you or they're shadow banning you or whatever it is they're doing. But I, I, it's a Google blog. That's the best part. It's a Google blog. It's a blog I write on Google. And I don't come, the, the exact name doesn't come up for 54 results now. What's the deal with this? 
<laughs> because of what I write yeah. about, because well, they're censoring me. So for those of you listening, I did want to let you know that uh, if you'd like to um, access Christopher Bruce's blog, um, you go on the NASCO website and look into the archives for this show. This is stand number 3253. Um, within the hyperlink of the description um, and of our show with Christopher's bio, um, there is a hyperlink to his blog, so you may find his blog um, directly on the hyperlink, and that will bring you right to it. So believe it or not, you know, we are out of time, Christopher, but I have reached yes, out to Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray, our founder and CEO, about taking you for part two. You will be hearing from okay. NASCA soon, very soon, to get okay. that scheduled, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. I really want to thank you for coming on tonight. Uh, I want to thank Tim Lake and my co-host, um, and I wanted to, again, remind you that this is um, scan number 3253, and our special guest is Christopher uh, Bruce. Um, please go on the NASCA website. It's www.nasca.org um, for information. I am, again, Penelope Bennett. Thank you so much. And I always say when I conclude these shows, there are enough eyes and ears on this planet to keep every child safe. As adults, we have more responsibility to do so. So if you see something, if you hear something, please say something, do something. And please, you know, God bless the children. Thank you very much and good evening. Yep, thank you very much for having me. Gone. You are the sky.